Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. We're going to embark upon a journey continuing through the study of what is known as the prison epistles. When I first came here, we studied the book of Ephesians, and then we went into the book of Philippians, and now today we're going to launch into the book of Colossians. And for those of you that are so new on your journey in faith, when you hear the word book and Bible and all of this kind of stuff, and yet you're looking at this, you, you might have some questions about it. Well, I'm not going to leave you out, and I'm going to try to present this in such a clear and understandable way that you can join us on this journey, even though you're so brand new to this. And yet at the same time, as often as I've taught this in Bible college before, I've rewritten my notes. I've gone through the research material again. I want you to know God has given me some current insights from His Word that I can't wait to share with you. And I believe that it's not going to be a dusty old study from a dusty old book from dusty old past. It's going to be alive and vibrant for our lives that when you leave here today, you'll be able to connect to what God has for you and make your week better for His glory. So I pray that as well. Now, the title of this message, I put down here, Say Hello to Our Sister Church. And for those of you that don't know, that means sister church. And in a way, even though this church existed 2,000 years ago, it has so many like things in that church that it would be like our sister church today. But let me quickly tell you that that church at Colossae, that group of believers, that building, that group is no longer there there's nothing more than what is known as a tell. A tell is a mound, like a big dirt mound, and there's a few little broken down buildings and temples around that little tell, but it's not there any longer. And I'm going to tell you that story a little bit later on. But even though the buildings are all broken down and the people are all scattered, what has not ended was the existing eternal truth of God's Word. It was so powerful that the truth then is the truth for us today, and it's a real blessing. Well, before I get into that, let me ask you a question. Those of you who know Christ as Savior, and you begin to get into some dialoguing with people that are on the street, people you go to work with or school with, do you sometimes hear from them when you begin to talk about going to heaven and those spiritual matters, the following four different kinds of responses? Let me give you one. Here's one. They say, yeah, I do want to get closer to God, but in reality, one way is good for one type of person, and another way to get closer to God is good for another kind of person, and because of all of that, you Christians need to be more tolerant and quit saying that there's only one way to get to heaven, and you keep harping on it only being Jesus Christ. There are many different ways to get to heaven. Now, how many of you have heard that, perhaps, in your history of con conversing with people? I know I have. Here's a second one. They say, I want to get closer to God. But the way I get closer to God would be, since I can't really get that close to God right off, I have to go through his messengers, some sort of beings that God has created or made. And what better being is there than angels? And so if I get to understand about angels and I experience angelic activity in my life and I learn their names and I could even pray to them, then maybe by getting close to his messenger angels, I might be able to get closer to God. Now, you think that's not true. It really is. Those of you who are either coming out of or studying something about the New Age movement, you know that that's heavy in angelology, angel worship, we might say. Here's another one. I want to get closer to God, and the way to do that is this. I need to discover lists of rituals, rules, and regulations. And so I'm going to search all that's out there, and if I follow a set of rules and rituals and regulations just right, I'll make God happy with me. 
And when he's happy with me, well, then he'll allow me to get closer to him, especially when I die. Now, some of you have heard that as well, and there are a lot of groups that are like that. And I don't want to start naming any one because you'll think that's all there is, but most of those groups that are out there are very much like that, that they'll have a set of rules, and people are on this great quest to find what are those things because I want to do them, and I want to do them faithfully no matter what it is so I can get closer to God. Here's the fourth and final one. Have you heard this one? I want to get closer to God, and the way I do that is to get God happy with me. And the way to get God happy with me is to look at the things in my life that are not good. And if I give up these things, that God will like me enough and will allow me to get into his presence or into heaven if I give up these things. Now, without being specific on each one of those four and without maybe identifying different religions or belief systems, I would like to ask you to raise your hand on this. How many of you have heard at least one, if not more, than what I've just shared here, those four, at least one of those, in your conversation, or maybe even where you are now, of what you think or what they thought it takes to get closer to God? How many of you have heard that? Would you raise your hand? Now, I think that's all of us, probably because if we're on this side of the cross, before we trusted Christ as our Savior, we believe some of that or some composite of that. Now, here's what I find so important for us as we study Colossians. Do you know that those four issues, we'll call, that they thought they had to do in order to get closer to God is what they did in the time of the letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians. So the thinking they had in that day is the same thinking that is actually occurring in our day. We have around us, surrounding us right now, all those belief systems. But I would have to tell you that that's not an uncommon belief system that you'll find not only on the mainland, but you'll find it on any continent, in any country, in any city, in any little town or community. Because it's a belief system, here it is, that Satan, who himself opposes God, wants people to believe, to make them think that it's truth, only to be heir and to find out when they die that they'll spend eternity separated from the very person to whom they want to be close, which would be God. And so we have to understand this truth. Now, for the most part, I'm going to assume that you already know that those are four false belief systems. But I think that we're humble enough to admit that we need to learn those so that we can help others to refute and to um, <clears throat> reject those false teaching. And that's what I hope for us to be able to do. So this isn't a dusty book. What this book is going to teach us <clears throat> is that the false teaching generally is divided into this. It's either going to be grace and works. It's either going to be faith and good deeds or a combination of both. And we're going to learn that the Bible says that going to heaven is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. The second major truth we're going to learn from this study is that Jesus Christ is almighty God. He is supreme and he is sufficient. The problems that we're going to learn that was occurring 2,000 years ago are the same problems that people have today. The same solution that God chose to give to the Colossian people through Paul is the same solution that Paul gave to them that now gives to us for those of us who are willing to read the writings of Paul through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for us today. So whatever problems they had, we have. Whatever solutions God gave to them, God gives to us. Well, let's look now at the theme of this letter so that you kind of know where we're going. I'm going to pick some bigger words and then we'll explain them. First word is the word supremacy. We're going to learn about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. The supremacy we're going to learn is that he is supreme, that he is all we ever need. He is the king and that everything else less than that is permitted by God, but is no God. All right. So he's supreme and he's also sufficient. The focus of this letter is unlocking the mystery of the new life in Christ. 
And some people, when they trust Christ as Savior, they step over the line of trusting in Christ, they become a Christian, and now they realize, man, what is this new life all about? So let's ask this question. How many of you, without saying a word, don't have to stand up, don't have to speak, but just raise your hand, how many of you have trusted Christ as your personal Savior here in the last three years? Would you raise your hand? How many have trusted Christ in the last three years? Number of hands around here. Many of you that were baptized. Okay. Now, some of you have come a little bit further into the door of this spiritual Disneyland, and you're sensing, oh, there's a lot there. But I'm going to tell you, those that have walked that, that wonderful road of their maturity in Christ, there's so much more for us to learn, and what we're going to do is we're going to learn to unlock that mystery of the new life. I'm wanting to come alongside you with these truths to help you in your relationships at home, on the job, at work, wherever you might be, so that you can have a very vibrant and healthy and spiritual Christian life for you. And that's my desire. You're going to say, wait a second, it sounds like Paul, who wrote to this church, is writing just about the same things to this other church. And so really what he's doing is he's kind of being redundant. And so if I've already read Ephesians, I can skip Colossians because it's so close. Well, let me caution you not to do that. One main reason is because God wanted it to be found in Scripture, which means that there is a special separate message when you study Colossians than you do with the book of Ephesians. Yes, they're very close. And yes, God does believe in repetition because more of that will stick with us the more often we hear it. But yes, he believes in new truths. So let me make that simple for you. In the book of Ephesians, it talked a lot about the body of Christ, having a relationship with God, having a relationship with one another, healthy relationships. So it's talking about the body of Christ. Those who know Christ as Savior, that's known as the body of Christ. You have a body of water, all right? Body of Christ. But Colossians is just a little bit different. While it will talk somewhat about the body of Christ, the emphasis will be on the head of the body of Christ. This one is going to talk about how to have healthy relationships appropriately connected to the head of the body. So that's why there's a great deal of emphasis on Christology. Christology is the study of Jesus Christ. So that's the emphasis in this, is the study of Christ. And I can't wait to teach you because it will help us understand who he is, but it'll also tell us how we can best connect to him. So that's the difference between the two of those. So why did Paul write this letter? Well, before I answer that question, it might be good for me to ask you that question. And here's how I want to do that. Why do you write any letters? Here's what I'm saying. I don't know why you wrote your letter. If I was probably to take a survey, some of it would be when you write a note to that person, you're either congratulating them because it's their birthday, anniversary, or something special. Some of you, because it's post-Christmas, you're writing your thank you letters to those, and so you're kind of doing some thank you notes. Some others of you are probably wanting to disseminate information that you need them to know, so you're kind of announcing or reminding them of something. Others of you, it's just you stay connected to our military personnel overseas or some of you to people on the mainland. So it's just a matter of sharing information. Well, none of that is necessarily bad because Paul, when he wrote letters, he wrote a letter that was a thank you letter. Anybody remember the name of that group of people in that book, which was predominantly a thank you letter? Help me, please get it right. What was it? That's right, Philippians, okay, that's great. The uniqueness about this letter is that he is responding to a situation in which the people who were believers in Colossae were experiencing all around them. And so I'm looking at him now through his book, and I'm sensing he really loved those people at Colossae. What a pastor's heart, what a heart he had for his brothers and sisters in Christ. He loved them so much, watch this now, that he was not afraid 
to be able to give them information that would cause them to either correct their wrong thinking, and that's hard to do, and then secondly, would be to not correct so much, but to make sure they had foundational right teaching. So he gave them information that was right. So a sense, he was giving a letter to them that had what is known as substance. Now, I'm not saying a thank you letter doesn't have substance or perhaps giving information to others does not have substance, but most of that are courtesy communications. His was courteous because he was a kind, gentle guy at times, but more than that, what he wanted to do was to give something of substance, something that would change or correct or instruct the thinking of the people who lived then because he knew this truth, and this is so cool. He knew that if he got their thinking right, their attitudes then would be right, usually towards one another and God. And if their attitude was right, their behavior was right. So when he wrote to them, he wanted to appeal to their thinking to make it correct. Secondly, and I think those of you who have lived on the island long enough know that the culture here in Hawaii is to not be offensive as much as possible. Be as politically correct as you can. Be as aloha and as kind as you can. In fact, even sometimes we step over the line and when someone asks us to do something, we agree to do it, we know we probably won't, and then we don't do what we said we're going to do because we value not hurting the other person even sometimes greater than truth or not telling the truth. And so that becomes a challenge to us, does it not? And so for us, it's harder for us to give something that is strongly instructional or even mildly correctional because we know in our culture it's very difficult for them to receive that. And certainly we don't want to hurt them first. And then secondly, we also don't want to lose that important thing, value, which is a relationship with them. Yet may I say this, and I'm going to appeal to your thinking and truth on this. As important as that is, and I'm not minimizing that, what is most important is the question, if we really, really do love them, genuinely, not just so we kind of hang together. We really love them. Do we love them enough to correct them when they're wrong? And do we love them enough to help them by instructing them to get them to another level, even if it means that they have to make some changes in their thinking? So the real question is, is how much do we really love them? And it's probably wrapped up into learning how to communicate corrective information and learning how to communicate instructive information that will help them. And perhaps those of us that are setting aside where we've been in our culture and saying, I want to be part of a brand new culture. I want to be a biblical culture. Maybe if we're in that mode then, our thought will be, maybe there's a style that I can learn even from Paul. I'll learn the truth. I'll learn what he's correcting. And I'm going to learn what he's instructing. But I'm also going to learn there's a subliminal message. How did he do it in a culture that struggled? In Colossae now. They were embracing all the things that our similar culture is right here. So if that culture is the same, then I have to believe that the Christians, they had their heart turned toward God like you and I have our heart turned toward God. But the tension was that they lived in a community that didn't have their heart turned toward the right God or the God of truth, did they? So they struggled dramatically with that. There was this tremendous tension that was going on. So Paul said, here's what I want you to do, and he did it in an appropriate manner so they could rise above the tension of the society to bring Christ to them. And that's the joy that we have. So why do you write a letter? Well, why did Paul write this letter? Let me give you three reasons. Not that his reasons will always be your reasons to write a letter, but it is to tell you that he had to respond to a need that the Colossians had. So here's number one. 
he responded to the attack on the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. What was happening back then is the Christians were trying to rise above the culture and remembering that Christ is supreme and sufficient. So he wanted to equip those people with truth so that they could be able to respond to the false teaching that was going on. So he spoke to that issue. So he spoke about the supremacy that Jesus Christ is all God. He spoke to the fact that God himself is the creator and the supreme creator of all. He spoke to the fact that even though that God was God, he was also human. That is probably the most difficult part for the culture then that it was for here. And here's what it meant. That he was saying that Jesus Christ himself was all God, but at the same time when Christ walked on the earth, he took on the form of humanity. And to be all God and all man, you know, some of us are, are so quick to say, oh, I can take that by faith. And we just go on with life. For the people in those days to be able to equate a holy, wonderful, supreme God with Jesus still being human, that was huge to them. They could not get it. Now you're probably saying, why is that? Well, let me take you back because I think you're going to see why this still fits into some of the belief systems that are on the island here. So back in those days, here's what they thought, that God was so powerful, so wonderful. But in order to get to God, that God had what we might call a pecking order or an echelon, and it kind of chopped itself down. And so the closer you would start down here, man was the most wicked, and then you'd get to a little higher man, and then you'd get to a lower level of angels, and then a little higher level of angels, and the most prominent angel of all beyond all angels and had a, a degree of God was Jesus, but he still wasn't all God. And so here you've got is the greatness of God and the wickedness of man. And so when you're saying that God himself was humanity, they couldn't get it because because this pure God couldn't be wicked man at the same time. So what did they do with Jesus then? They then set him aside and created their own belief system, and they borrowed from Jesus from time to time something that they liked, and they created their own belief system. All of you is probably know someone that has Jesus somewhere in their belief system, but doesn't have him at the head of their belief system. And that's what was going on in those days. And that's why you had this little pecking order that was going on. So what he had to do is to explain that Jesus was man. Now, why was that? God is pure, man is evil. If Jesus became man, he would be taken on the evil part of, of the world of materialism and humanity, and they couldn't fathom that. Now, we're still underneath. They were struggling with that, and these Christians were bombarded, just smashed up against that belief system every time they went to the marketplace, every time the men went out to kibitz with some of the guys that went to battle, every time the kids went out and played they believed in Jesus just like our kids, and they had a good, strong belief system in the church. But they came against this other culture, and he knew that if they kept hearing this over and over again, it wouldn't be long before you'd have pollution in the church, and the thing would break down entirely. When we look about the sufficiency of Christ, what's happening today in the world is because of political correctness, and they want to make sure that they don't infuriate Christians who see Jesus as being the sufficient and supreme one. What they've done now is that they said, okay, he is su sufficient and supreme for you, but not necessarily for me. Or what Jesus is, he is as good as, and they could put him up against another belief system, another ruler, even if it's another man who they say got special revelation from God. And so now they put Jesus on the same plane. Let me read to you out of a very simple layman's commentary, something that really might make it easier for you to understand this. Listen, this just spoke to me. Here's what you would be encountering. It says the most dangerous heresies the church is called on to combat from time to time are not those which openly and blatantly assail the person of our Lord, but rather those which subtlety detract from his dignity. 
while giving the appearance of honoring him. Did you catch that? We'll recognize him, we'll honor him, but he's not all God. It says, those who perceive this danger will always treasure Colossians as a manual for exposing points of view, which have many good things to say about the head of the church, but proceed to dim the luster of his glory by eclipsing his preeminence. There would be limited value in this book if Paul had been content merely to issue a string of denials of the false teaching which had been made known to him. But in the process of meeting air, the apostle was led to give us deep insights into the person and work of our Savior, preeminently over all personages and forces, unique in his redeeming and reconciling ministry for mankind, the head of the church, whose risen life flows into all the members of his body, and thus the message has abundant appeal for successive generations of believers. What was happening then was that they said, we'll recognize Christ, but not all Christ. So they dimmed the view of Christ. They'd honor him, but they would dim the view of Christ. Paul then says, I know these people are being smacked with that belief. So instead of me naming denominations and religions and belief systems and whatever they had by then and negatively just smashing them, he said, instead of that, what I'm going to do is strengthen their knowledge and their accuracy of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. Once you have a proper handle on that, then the rest of this becomes easily refutable. And that's what was going on. And so he chose to give them more truth than run around being negative. And when we deal with our children, instead of yelling at them for all their failures and mistakes and the things that they're doing wrong, help them by telling them by modeling and mentoring what is so truthful. And when they see that, they're more apt to follow the truth and see the dangers of the errors. And that's what Paul was doing. Let's go to number two, the response to this. He not only responded to the attack on the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, but also on the way to live the new life in Christ with the Lord being in charge. I did not say that he was going to teach them a new way to live the Christian life. Look at, the, look at that line. It didn't say that. It said, live the new life with him, Christ, being in charge. There are a lot of churches you'll go to. You can listen. There's a plethora of radio programs. And they'll give you a whole list of pop psychology. And I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. A lot of that is just good life principles. But the problem with it does is it does the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Because unless you know why you do these things and from whom you get the power from it all, they become just another list of rituals and rules that sooner or later will deteriorate into legalism. So what he's doing is he says, okay, I'm going to show you about how he's greater than all the other denominations, religions, and isms, and spasms. But he says, I'm also going to show you that Christ is at the very center of how we live our new life. He's the head of that. And so when we come back to this, some of you have been Christians a long time, but you're following lists and rules and regulations and, and stuff like that instead of centering on, on the Lord. I'm not down on you for that. I'm saying, great that you did that. But now let me show you a greater, greater, better, more accurate way to do that. And that's what I'm doing it for Christ. He is at the head. Everything I do is to please Him. First of all, you'll have this balance of all those rules and rituals. Secondly, you'll have it with more power. You'll have it with the proper motivation. And you'll do it for his glory, and God will smile on you. And so that's what he's going to do. Number three, the third reason he wrote this was to respond to what is known as the Colossian heresy. The Colossian heresy. But first of all, it dealt with false thinking, which was basically Gnosticism. And I already gave you that on the false thinking that you have God, and then you have all the other beings, including Christ and man is at the bottom. False thinking. So Gnosticism is to know so much stuff and then believe this stuff even if it's not right. Second is Jewish ceremonialism, which would be false works. 
Remember, a lot of these Christians were Jewish, so they were still maybe wanting to revert back to taking some of the Jewish laws along with the new teaching, and now that was all convoluted. You had angel worship, which was false worship. And by the way, um, don't, don't think less of this. This angel worship is huge. We talked about that a moment ago. To me, I think that that is one of the core components of New Ageism, is this angel worship. I'm not denying the existence of angels. We believe in angels. We just don't worship them. But people have now convoluted into this thing to make it better than it is. That's part of the Colossian heresy. And if you don't think this is happening, get into a spiritual conversation with anybody and you'll be amazed at the stuff that they believe and they come up with. And yet it's not in agreement with God's word. So you'll see that as a part of it. And then last is what we call false sacrifice, where they kind of beat up on themselves, and we see some of that. What Paul did to refute this false teaching is that he wanted to be completely committed to building up the faith of the people. And he did it by prayer and exhortation and teaching, but to build up the faith. I want to build your faith up every week. And if you can't come here on a Sunday for X reason, I will never look down on you. I will never marginalize you. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando, Florida. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore@makeitclear.org. at Thank you, and remember to make it clear.